You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hello, everyone. My name is Evan Bernard, and I am a research fellow with the Center for Climate and Security at the Council on Strategic Risks. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation between Rachel Fleischman and myself about climate security in the Southeast Asia region, including how the increasingly realized effects of climate change augment threats to economic activity and geopolitics in the region. This is the first in a series of discussions we will be having on the topic of climate security in South and Southeast Asia. We begin by noting the threats climate change poses to the members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, and the relationship between those threats and instability, conflict, and insecurity in the region. The interview was recorded on the eve of the U.S.-hosted Leaders' Summit on Climate, which yielded support from Southeast Asian leaders. If you are interested in reading more about this topic, I encourage you to read the International Military Council on Climate and Security's recent report on climate and energy security in Southeast Asia, which is linked in the podcast description. Let's go to the interview. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Rachel Fleischman. Rachel Fleischman is a senior fellow for Asia Pacific at the Center for Climate and Security, where she focuses on the Asia Pacific region and Asia Pacific liaison at the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Rachel began her career in national security policy, working in nuclear arms control at SAIC, the Pentagon, and NATO. At the Pentagon, Rachel worked for the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Environmental Security, where she helped to conceive and build the Pentagon's international environmental security program. Rachel is currently an advisor for businesses and nonprofits on climate change and circular economy issues at Insight Sustainability. Prior to her current role, Rachel held management positions in multiple organizations. Rachel Fleischman, welcome to On The Verge. It's a pleasure to be with you today. 2021 is a particularly important year for climate and security, and today, I would like to focus on climate security in the Southeast Asia region. As we speak on Earth Day, the United States is hosting the Climate Leaders Summit with 40 countries invited from around the world, including Southeast Asia. What initially led you to work on climate change and its impacts, particularly in the Southeast Asia region? Thanks for that. For me, starting my career in the Pentagon uh, focused me on some of the key, perhaps underappreciated existential threats facing the nation. So as I was graduating from college and, and, and graduate school in the late 80s and early 90s, we were looking at nuclear arms control. When, with the demise of the Soviet Union, uh, more focus shifted to other non-traditional threats, and it became very clear that environmental scarcity, competition over scarce resources, and environmental degradation were issues that were going to lead 
peoples and nations to, toward conflict. And since that time, it's become very clear that, that climate change is a key exacerbator and accelerator of conflict because of what it does, what the, you know, the, the stresses that it, that it contributes to um, existing instability and resource scarcity. Now, these changes, I think, have been recognized in the U.S. Uh, through some of the excellent work that's been done both by the Center for Climate and Security uh, and by a number of other think tanks and organizations. Indeed, a number of the excellent scholarship that's been done has been initiated by some of the people whom I was serving with in the Pentagon in the 90s um, and continues today. It's less of a, of a developed topic in South and Southeast Asia. And so that's my interest in trying to bring these issues to the fore. Thank you so much. You mentioned a lot of climate hazards, and there's a lot of research being done on them by different think tanks and a lot of academic work. And I'm wondering what you think some of the most potent climate hazards are in Southeast Asia, and how do climate hazards translate to security threats like conflict escalation and resource allocation disagreements in Southeast Asia? Okay, let me answer that in stages because it's quite a, a complicated picture. Um, first of all, I think it's helpful to orient ourselves in time and space. So starting with Southeast Asia, I tend to look at ASEAN, which represents the bulk and the diversity uh, of Southeast Asian countries. So Southeast Asia has been, for the last couple of decades, a model economic success story. Because they've come together in a, an economic and political block, ASEAN represents basically the fifth largest economy in the world and a very popular uh, destination for both trade and foreign direct investment from the EUS and the EU. So it's been a real success story in the region. Unfortunately, the success story is at risk from a number of things of which climate change is, is maybe one of the, the least recognized. Climate change threatens the basic systems upon which human life depends. So our food, water, shelter, energy, transport, and economic structures are all built on a stable climate, which is something we can no longer count on and is getting more variable as we move forward. Climate change can be a catalyst for conflict. Let me start with a, a critical and, and complex example of the South China Sea. The territorial assertions there looks like a mess of overlapping claims between the regional states, including China. Now, the Chinese have the concept of a nine-dash line, which is a U-shaped line which encompasses and claims up to 90% of the sea. There are particularly contentious areas where China has claimed the land, set up administrative governments already. They've also claimed hundreds of other islands or what is known in the literature as features and is building up military bases on small islands, reclaiming land and reinforcing its historic territorial claim. Chinese control over this marine territory means potential control over what happens on and under the waters, which has a lot of implications for economics and security. Moving on beyond South China Sea, climate change can have some interesting impacts on tense uh, sub-regional and subnational issues. So one of one of these is the existence of violence 
extremist organizations, particularly militant separatist groups in southern Thailand and the Philippines, some of them affiliated with ISIL, have become quite savvy in opportunistically using the chaos induced by climate change to step up their operations. So when when they see slow impact onsets like heat and drought and sea level rise, all of these affect the fishermen and the farmers in poor rural areas, making it more difficult to do their jobs. A second way is that this the, the violent extremist organizations are able to assert or project their dominance is during natural disasters. So we've seen these groups step into the governance vacuum immediately after a storm, offering aid, improving their social standing as sort of the, the assistance provider or the hero, and then again, positioning themselves to recruit the unemployed young, particularly young men. So that's a second piece. A, a third dimension has to do with sharing of transboundary resources, particularly water. And an example here is the Mekong. As a rule, riverine systems geographically favor the upstream riparian neighbor. So in this case, China. China is upstream, therefore it can control the headwaters. It's also, of course, a major military and economic power. As more dams get built on these very crowded rivers, the effects downstream can be quite severe. So better better governance structures are needed. But one more dimension to this that, that sometimes gets lost, which is that climate change has a quite a, a delirious effect on militaries as well. Climate change complicates military operations and readiness in three ways. First, it threatens the hard and soft assets upon which militaries depend. So people's, you know, the military personnel are subject to the same heat, storms, extremes that everyone else is. Their buildings, equipment, and ability to be operationally ready can be damaged or compromised by extreme weather. Secondly, increasing mission creep. So more and more often militaries in the region and indeed around the world are being called upon to perform what we call HADR, humanitarian assistance or disaster response missions, rather than other more traditional military missions. So this is an important use of resources that's becoming more and more central to the military uh, operational landscape. And finally, the threat multiplier issue. And this is something that we've been talking about in terms of this catalyst for conflict, already tense situations involving resource disputes or extremist organizations, et cetera, can further tensions which can then lead to conflict. You make many great points, and I love the term catalyst for conflict. And the last part, when you are talking about the three aspects of how climate change is affecting the military, threatening hard and soft assets, increasing the need for disaster response, and most importantly, acting as a threat multiplier. I think those are really important considerations for the militaries. And in discussions describing climate change as a threat multiplier and explaining how climate change should be factored into military policymaking and national security decisions, the topic of energy sometimes falls through the cracks. The International Military Council on Climate and Security recently released a report on Southeast Asia. This report, which you co-authored, incorporates a discussion of energy resource use in the region. What is the significance of fossil fuel use and energy sustainability to climate security in Southeast Asia region? 
Thanks for the question. Um, th this is this is a really interesting angle of the study, um, and and something I think that needs to be more broadly discussed and looked at, which uh, was one of our recommendations. But to break it down, the investments that that are made in coal and other fossil fuel energy today are just locking in a very dangerous future from a climate security perspective. So. There's two main strategies to look at. First is to prevent or mitigate further climate change by transitioning to low carbon fuels as quickly as possible. And secondly, to deeply consider climate security risk when determining future energy sources. Now, decarbonizing an energy supply is not an easy task. Energy consumption in Southeast Asia has grown 80% in the last 20 years, and it's projected to grow another 60% in the next 20 years. Um, and as mentioned earlier, cooling, space conditioning, air conditioning is a critical element of that and needs to actually happen. There's only a 20% penetration of air conditioning in the region, 10% in Indonesia, which is the most populous country. But space cooling is going to be really essential for people to remain healthy and viable as the weather grows hotter. So we do need more power. But how this power is generated is going to be consequential for both human health and climate security. There's a lot of coal in the region right now, and the existence of, of coal-fired power plants has been cited as a cause of death. The last figure I saw was 2.4 million premature deaths from air pollution from coal-fired power plants in 2016. And there's more coal coming online. 80% of the new coal plant today is in Asia. And most of that in Southeast Asia is being funded by Korea, Japan, and China, which incidentally um, and ironically are the three countries that have committed to becoming net zero by 2050 or 2060 respectively, but have not fully integrated that carbon neutral or net zero philosophy into their foreign aid yet. There's certainly pressure to do that. And that's one of the things that the Biden administration has put on its list to discuss with allies. So coal is a problem. It means a transition away from coal. In terms of oil and gas, it's interesting. This is another area of contention in the South China Sea. U.S. government estimates are that there's 11 million barrels of oil uh, and 100 and 90 trillion cubic meters of gas in the South China Sea. Um, that would equate to, for China, two years of oil and 17 and a half years of gas. And the Chinese are actively pursuing that. In fact, they've actually blocked efforts by Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines from drilling, and then set up drilling themselves off of Vietnamese coastal waters, which itself has become another potential conflagration point. Um, and Vietnam has been amongst the, the loudest to express its displeasure with this. ASEAN's been a bit more balanced in its approach because of the diversity of interests and, of course, because of the huge shadow of China. So it's something that still needs to get worked out, um, but there's not a strong institutional body to address this sort of issue. The U.S. response has been increasing freedom of navigation, so U.S. naval vessels uh, in the region but really the longer question, the larger question we need to ask is, is twofold. One, what is the institutional response to conflicts like this? And secondly, where would this oil and gas then fit into a low carbon energy strategy that the region needs to develop? Because really we should be looking at more renewables, but renewables and low carbon energy are not so easy to institute either. 
there's some limitations because of geography and the nature of the installed grids. So even Singapore, for instance, which is very land poor, is only aiming for 8% renewable energy, mostly through solar by 2030. Indonesia and Philippines need to upgrade their grids. That's going to take a lot of time and money. The regional renewables today are mostly biofuels and, and, and hydroelectric power. Wind and solar are expected to grow. So there is also some discussion uh, and some interest, low-level interest in nuclear power. But here I would, I would throw in a, a security sort of caution that for any of these countries to develop nuclear power, they would need to collaborate with an existing nuclear power leader. And in fact, the Philippines has signed a long-term cooperative agreement with Rostatom from Russia. Uh, Thailand is talking to China. But these sorts of agreements require at least 30, if not longer, years of presence and influence and collaboration and continuous supply relationships and therefore strategic influence, which is going to be a permanent fixture in the region going forward. So Southeast Asian nations are, are really tying themselves quite tightly to whoever it is that they rely on for nuclear fuel. There's a physical aspect that has of climate change vulnerability as well. Nuclear plants need vast amounts of water for cooling. Um, and in fact, I think 25% of the nuclear plants globally are located on coasts. But the coastal areas in Southeast Asia remain amongst the most vulnerable in, in the world. And this concept of, of sea level rise plus storm surge plus subsidence could also imperil any nuclear facility. So any, anything which is built needs to be resilient, not just to today's situation, but to the two degree world that we are, we are very quickly heading into. So I guess the, the bottom line is that energy policymakers and security analysts need to jointly develop what we would call situational awareness, which is understanding in a situation what are the key factors um, that are changing? What are the dynamics? What do you need to be attuned to? And then predicting and engaging with those factors that can cause a threat or pretend to change in this dynamic socio-political or security landscape in which these energy investments are being made. Great. Thank you. Now, you mentioned situational awareness. I'd like to turn to high-level diplomacy. There are two high-level Asian defense summits, the Shangri-La Dialogue and the ASEAN Defense Minister's Meeting, that are scheduled for this June. What would be your top climate security topics that you would hope the defense ministers would address? Great question. I, I think that ASEAN um, has a, a strong institutional basis for tackling um, issues, sort of ambiguous transboundary issues like, like, like climate change, but it hasn't been elevated to the level yet that science and the urgency of the situation would suggest. So I would like to see defense ministers focus on specific populations at risk. So that could be that would be coastal coastal megacities and coastal areas. And it would be shared and transboundary resources where we're talking where the examples we spoke about are South China Sea and Mekong River. There are other transboundary issues as well. And then the third being this link between energy and climate security. So the energy climate security nexus and to add their voice to the, the, the energy policy making decisions. We in the United States are actually fortunate that our military has recognized the impact of climate change 
on both military operations and security situations, and that, and that military and retired military and security analysts testify fairly regularly before Congress about these issues, and the gravitas of those voices are recognized. That's not yet the case in Southeast Asia. So I would love to see, as the third leg of this triangle, the military voices in Southeast Asia rising to the level of, this is a problem that we need to solve now. You know, Basically saying, if we don't make smart energy, low-carbon energy investments today, we're going to have uh, difficult security situations tomorrow. So let's work much more closely across government silos and make sure that that happens. To say things at the diplomatic level is one thing, but to actually act is sometimes a completely different thing. What can Southeast Asian countries do to minimize both their carbon footprint and conflict? Yes, that is the key question, isn't it? So Southeast Asia needs three things, political will, technical capacity, and and resources, funding to decarbonize. But it's not just that. Uh, They also need to do all these three things and marshal these resources on a timescale that's dictated by science and not political expediency. And also doing it in a way that's mindful of local security issues and the need to build resilience. So as you imply, these things are easy to say and hard to do. To take the converging risks of of climate change, national security and energy and incorporate them holistically into policymaking. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not necessary. And as far as as we can tell it is. So what my co-authors and I did was, was try to tailor specific recommendations for three distinct sets of actors. The basic message being understand climate security, understand what it means for your domain and incorporate it holistically into what you're already doing. So the three sets of actors are military actors, regional governments, and uh, energy policymakers. In terms of what the military should do, it's basically to add a tablespoon of climate into all the development of doctrine, threat projections, operational planning, training, and equipment member, a systemic manner. That means assessing military assets and capabilities against the latest climate science, and then stress testing these operational capabilities and updating it as needed. Now, this is what's going on in the corporate world. Banks are doing this, companies are doing this, militaries have to do this as well. At the ASEAN level, there should be a consideration of of incorporating climate security watch centers, so dedicated personnel to collect information, perform analysis, and make recommendations to policymakers predicting droughts or where fish stocks are going, et cetera, et cetera, that can help the region's policymakers be more prepared. And then finally, continue as they've already been doing to, to run collaborative exercises to promote joint readiness for natural disasters with a special focus on the sensitivities around working with local civilian, very diverse local civilian populations and interest groups and NGOs in difficult conditions. So that's the military piece. For regional government, it would behoove them to holistically incorporate climate security in the energy climate security nexus at the national and regional levels. ASEAN could step up its disaster response role, um, which it's already taken on, to coordinate data sharing, planning, and funding 
with particular focus on those geographic areas that are vulnerable to both climate and security challenges. Prevention is another key strategy. So targeting economic developments to those vulnerable populations, as well as resilience that could keep tensions from escalating to, to conflict. And then thirdly, developing the conflict management mechanisms that ASEAN lacks today. And you know we're seeing this in the Myanmar situation. There is no mechanism within ASEAN to address these sorts of state-level conflicts. So a, do- a joint management strategy for regional territorial disputes, um, including marine-based resources. In terms of energy policymakers, I think they, they need and deserve uh, an intro to climate security and assistance in being able to scope and identify the human security issues facing them when they're considering these different energy investments. They have a duty to, to start uh, national carbon drawdown plans with creative ways to finance them. The, the World Economic Forum has made some suggestions. There's some other large development banks that are working on this, so they're, they're not alone. They can leverage existing ASEAN programs that are already cross-border. Uh, there's a power integration agreement between Laos, Thailand, and Malaysia. There's a project to harmonize interconnection codes uh, to collaborate on cross-border renewable resources that could accelerate investment in low-carbon energy and taking climate considerations fully into account when modeling the physical and geographical disposition of, of, of future power plants. So to summarize, you know, climate change threatens not only the social, economic, human well-being in Southeast Asia, but its security as well. And policymakers need to take a holistic systems level approach uh, to ensure that the systems and assets they put in place today are consistent with the vibrant, safe, and, and peaceful future that, that ASEAN is, is dedicated to produce. Fantastic. Do you have any thoughts that you would like to add for the listeners? Any final thoughts? If our recommendations are for local and regional policymakers to step out of their boxes and think about this more holistically, I would challenge other actors in the region or coming into the region, be it business people, investors, bankers, tourists, family members, to also be aware of, increase the situational awareness of climate change and its impact on human health, the environment, and security in everything, in all of your operations and everything that you do and in all of your interactions in Southeast Asia. Well, thank you, Rachel. I greatly enjoyed this insightful discussion. I look forward to future discussions. Thank you for joining the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Evan. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.